This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be a very first-time listener here at 88.7, also heard throughout the Internet. And if you are, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge in terms of your life or ministry and you want biblical counsel on, or maybe a passage you're trying to understand or apply contextually. If we can be of help, all you need to do is pick up the phone, the local number here, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio. We were gone last week, Rick. I was doing a funeral for one of our uh, members, and uh, so the questions have just stacked up. But, of course, we always give live callers preference, and so if you want to get your question in, call live. Again, 843-525-1859, or you can email us at tbl. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Well, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Very good. Anonymous listener from Richmond Hill says, We've received letters from a JW, a Jehovah's Witness, who apparently has gotten a mass marketing mailing list of residents of our former city. In the past, when JW came to our house, I would tell them that Jesus is God, as clearly laid out in the entire Bible, and I will never change my belief because it is the truth. But with this letter and return address, I'm wondering how you might reply to this person as a witnessing opportunity. I have copied and pasted the contents of her latest letter inviting us to the 22 Convention of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, below. And I'm now paraphrasing here. I am sending my neighbor this invitation. Jehovah knows what we need to enjoy each day. Pursue peace now. You can watch at different times. I would love to see you. You are cordially invited to view the 2022 Um, Convention of Jehovah's Witnesses. The theme of the convention this year is Pursue Peace. Now, some may doubt that real peace is attainable due to the violence and insecurity that is rampant in the world today. However, God promises that our peace can become just like a river, serene, abundant, and ongoing. And they quote Isaiah 48, 17, and 18. But how is this possible? That question will be answered at this convention. The program will be presented in six sessions, Program highlights, Friday sessions, learn how love leads to inner peace and peace with others, see why the Bible's advice for marriage, mates, parents, and children can be called the roadmap to family peace. Saturday sessions, is it possible to enjoy peace if you suffer from illness, economic problems, natural disasters, or other difficulties? Watch an uplifting video that shows what people around the world are doing to enjoy peace. And then the Sunday sessions, can we really become God's friends? Is friendship with God automatic or is it something required of us? Here are the answers to those questions in the Bible-based talk, Friendship with God, How Possible. And I did not put down the web address where that is for 
needless to say, reasons. Yeah, well, you just gave a great advertisement. I, guess, you know. I didn't give the address. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. But, you know, what they're doing is really crafty. It's very, very crafty. They're trying to reach out and offer people hope in a hopeless world. Of course, the hope they offer is no hope at all. And, of course, the word hope, elpidus, in Greek means something that is short and certain. And they cannot offer anything short and certain because their theology at the core is bad. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And that's what the evil one does. He's a great deceiver. He disguises himself, and he does it through his men. We just, uh, in our prophecy series, address the book of Jude. And Jude speaks of those who slip in unaware. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, I would say to this caller, uh, just remember there's always two reasons people are in a cult. One reason is because they've heard the truth, they've rejected the truth, and they believe a lie. That's a biblical principle that is operative today, and it will be operative in a broad way when the Antichrist comes, because people who have heard the gospel and because they loved darkness and wickedness and sin— they will experience a deluding influence. The Bible says that they might believe what is false. But it's operative today, as Jesus reminded uh, in John's gospel, some of the leaders who had rejected him. And he, of course, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, but he says, while you have the light, walk in the light. Why? That you might become sons of light. And then he warns them, and John actually gives kind of a parenthetical note here, that though Jesus had performed many miracles in their presence, they still would not believe. And for this reason, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah, um, God allows them to believe what's false. So these are very, very important things. So some people are in a cult because they've rejected the truth and they believe the lie. And then there are other people who are just looking for answers to life. And that's a reminder to us. We have the answers. Remember, Jehovah's Witness are not Christians. They are not Christians. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the substitutionary atonement as the only way of salvation. Uh, They deny the eternal retribution on lost, unbelieving people. Every major core doctrine of biblical Christianity is denied. But they're reaching out. Oh, is it possible to have God as your friend? Of course it is. But how does that unfold? And so their answers to peace, you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And it's possible, of course, to have peace with God without experiencing the peace of God. But we have peace with God, Romans 5, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something they deny. They deny that Jesus is God, able to pay for sin, able to die as our substitute. So every carrot that they're holding out there is, well, it's poisonous, and it will lead to the damnation of souls. So I say all that to say you might be wasting your breath. Um, If someone doesn't have ears to hear, just back off, pray for them. There may come a time, though, uh, as 
has happened in the many uh, Jehovah's Witness I've witnessed to over the years. They just became disillusioned. They began to see adultery amongst their own. They began to see compromise morally, and they just knew something was not right. And in the process, they began looking, and maybe that will happen to your dear friend. <coughs> All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Bert from Bluffton says that a few weeks ago, you mentioned in one of your Sunday messages the Fall 2023 Israel Tour. Do you know when the details will be available on our website? Well, we're definitely uh, exploring that right now and praying for wisdom. You know, the challenge, of course, uh, the Jewish people are on a lunar calendar, and so, and it's actually more accurate than our solar calendar, but nonetheless, that changes the fall festivals and when the dates come, and so I don't want to go too early because sometimes it's a little too hot. Neither do I want to go too late when the rainy season begins. So we're dialoguing right now, trying to uh, look at availabilities and dates. And uh, we should know probably uh, by September. We usually like to give a year in advance, but it's going to be in September, October framework, God willing, in uh, 2023. Thanks for asking, Bert. All right, June from Beaufort uh, would like you to please recommend a good church in the Jacksonville, North Carolina area. Friends there are looking for one. Also, are you familiar with an organization called Vital Church Ministries? Yeah, so let me start with church requests. Um, There's a church called Pillar Church, P-I-L-L-A-R. There's now a series of them. They've started around a lot of uh, military bases. They are reformed in their doctrine, uh, Calvinistic, uh, five-pointers, but they tend not to overshadow their teaching with that as often as the case in Reformed churches. That's all they want to preach and teach. Uh, With that said, they are solid people. They have the gospel. They're evangelistic. Uh, They have, in a very... uh, set way, tried to focus on military bases to reach uh, military men and women, but not, of course, exclusively. I'd say in some respects they'd be like us and that uh, Community Bible Church, we have, you know, hundreds of military people, but at the same time, uh, it's largely a community base of people as well And that, look, you can't reach the military effectively unless you reach the community. And when I first came to Community Bible Church, it was almost all military. Uh, there is very few civilian people. And you just can't build a church with that mindset because every two or three years you lose your congregation. And if you're going to have ongoing ministry and outreach and you build a base of um, income as well to do the necessary functions of a local assembly, you've got to reach the community people. And in the process, you'll reach more people. But Pillar Church is... Um, Probably one right now that I would recommend in the Jacksonville area. Um, With that said, Vital Church Ministries, kind of an interesting ministry. And there are ministries like this that uh, come up from time to time, and their um, focus typically is to offer some specialty need. And so if you go to their website, uh, they're involved in, quote-unquote, revitalizing churches in transition. So they come in, a team of people, very, very expensive. Um, they, in my opinion, uh, are offering the obvious. 
they are offering the obvious. And if a church thinks that some outdoor organization, outside organization is going to come in and say, do A, B, C, and D, focus on these and things will change. They will not unless the people are biblically informed and have a pastor who's committed to shepherding them based on those biblical principles. So, you know, I, I look at it like peacemakers ministry. You know, people say, well, bring in peacemakers if there's a problem in the church. And Paul says, aren't there enough wise people among you to solve the problem? And fundamentally, if a church needs revitalization, the people have either lost vision or the pastor has, and he's just doing a maintenance ministry. You know, I'll do the funerals and the weddings, and, you know, we'll have a you know, church service on Sunday morning or whatever they choose to to gather, but they've lost vision for the Great Commission. And unless the church is fundamentally, A, evangelistic, and B, involved in uh, building the saints, and C, making both of those things happen through prayer. And by the way, those are the three focuses of a pastoral job description. He commits himself to prayer, to the ministry of the Word, Acts uh, underscores that, and he's also doing the work of an evangelist. And the people will very often become what the pastor himself is like. And so I think the key is just to find the right leader, even if the church is at death's door and there's just, you know, three people left. If you have a guy who comes in who's committed to those things and, of course, is gifted and called of God to do those things, then potentially a church can be revitalized and you don't have to spend six, twelve, eighteen, twenty thousand dollars for some outside organization to come and tell you what God has already written in his word. Good question. Let's go to the next. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Kelly from Rinkin said, Did Judas leave out from the Lord's Supper and not take the supper? I think it is the book of John that said he left out with the bread in his hand. The other Gospels didn't really say or did not say he left out. Uh, This was a discussion with some people over this, and some said he was there for the Lord's Supper. Could you give your thoughts and insight on this? Thank you. Also, do you think that the verse that talks about death and illness from taking the Lord's Supper is primarily talking about divisions within the church? I know all sin is serious and needs to be confessed, and one is to take the supper with pure and clean heart, or we can drink judgment on ourselves. But someone said this verse is primarily talking about taking the Lord's Supper with divisions among them in the church. Please explain and give insight on all of this. Thank you. Well, uh, I've turned to Matthew's account here. And, of course, the Lord's Supper is found in all four Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and John seem to imply that, you know, uh, Judas was present or not present, uh, Luke. Well, let me just read the text. It says here in Matthew 26, let me pick it up here in verse uh, 20. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who is betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. 
While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you. So at first uh, glance, you might assume that Judas was present for the Lord's table. Um, but I think what took place, because remember the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, is that Judas left between verses 25 and 26. So he asked the question, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, you've said to it, you've said it yourself. So just because something is omitted does not mean it didn't happen. As we'll see in a moment from John's account, clearly he did leave. When you go to Mark's account, Again, between verses 21 and 22, it says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then it says, while they were eating. So even in Mark's account, there appears to be a segment of time that transpires. So Judas, once again, could have left between verses 21 and 22. Um, there's certainly a time frame for that to unfold. And I would say, again, just because something uh, is omitted doesn't mean it happened. But we know definitively from John's gospel that he did leave. So let me turn to John's account. And uh, we read, now when n- now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. He, he had just said, let me back it up a verse. Jesus answered them, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for this feast. You know, this kind of reminds me, let me just say parenthetically, of what we just studied in, in Jude, how people can slip in unnoticed because here it is at the end of Christ's ministry and the disciples had not picked up that he was a tear. But we keep reading, it says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. So John provides a detail that's not provided in Matthew or Luke. He clarifies that Judas left the table immediately after dipping of the bread. So clearly something did happen between those two verses. I think the the, the greater challenge would be in Luke's gospel, because when you read Luke's account, it's, it's worded a little bit differently. And at first glance, it appears to say that Judas still was at the table. But again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And you need to remember, too, that the Gospels, there's a reason we have four, are written for different purposes, and they're written with different styles. If you study Luke's carefully, he wrote clearly with a unique style. By the way, he wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts. And at times, truths were viewed in chronological order, and sometimes Luke would address something Topically, for instance, you read about John the Baptist, and he mentions the story in in Luke 3 of John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and 
baptizing the multitude out in the Jordan. And then he immediately mentions how King Herod arrested John the Baptist and shut him up in prison. Um, Obviously, the chronological timeline is not being unfolded here because he's writing topically at this point because John hadn't even baptized Jesus, and obviously he had to have baptized, he had baptized Jesus, and he obviously had to baptize him before he was arrested. So again, when you have a clear passage of Scripture, the biblical principle is, is you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. And when you study Luke's gospel, just because, you know, he uh, maybe doesn't give the same detail that Matthew or Mark does, where maybe there's a potential opening there. John's gospel is clear. He left immediately after he ate the morsel. And when you think just biblically about Luke, because he writes topically and not always chronologically, then it would certainly fit his style that um, the way he unfolded the Lord's Supper. Good question. I appreciate it. Those are thinking people in that Sunday school class. Okay, and what about the uh, the aspect of drinking judgment? Uh... Yeah, so in 1 Corinthians, I, I think this is sadly a, a text of Scripture that is often abused and misused, and part of that is uh, due to translations of the Old English where the word condemnation uh, had a dual uh, connotation than it has today, uh, let a man examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks condemnation that King James has, judgment, the NAS, and the new King James has to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, and other have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so sometimes it's simply said, you know, if you're a baptized, confessing believer in Jesus Christ, you can share in the Lord's table. If you're not, pass the elements, let them slide by you because you might be drinking judgment to yourself. And it misses the whole context. The context was certainly there was division in the church as the opening chapter unfolds. People had their little sex, but there was sin in the camps. And so he has just unfolded that. He said, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper for in your eating. Each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. And so there was the sin of gluttony where some people didn't get to share in this meal that preceded the Lord's table, what was typically called a love feast. And then there were some who, instead of actually mixing the wine with water, which they typically did in a four or five to one ratio, they were just, you know, greedy and grabbed the wine and some even got drunk at the Lord's table, and here they were coming to God's table, a reminder that we're not our own, and they were inviting God's divine discipline. It was really a mockery, you know, to take the very elements that symbolize that we are to live in cleanness of heart and to eat in an unworthy fashion. And so the warning here is not given to the unbeliever, is often you know, said, hey, look, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't participate. Well, that's true. We shouldn't participate. But listen, millions and millions of people 
participate in the Lord's Supper every week across the world who are outwardly Christian, nominally Christian, but they're not born again. And sadly, you know, um, they think that maybe it helps to save them or it makes them right with God, but nothing happens to them because the warning is given to the believer. And so to participate in an unworthy fashion is to participate with known unrepented sin in your heart. And so we're to examine ourselves. It might be some known sin where we've compromised our heart. It might be something as simple as apathy or lukewarmness, just coldness of heart that we need to repent of because Jesus is worthy of our full worship. And so that's the warning. The warning is giving to believers not to fall under God's discipline by taking the very elements that symbolize you to walk in a pureness of life. It's a good question. Appreciate it. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we have Alberto on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yes, good morning, sir. Yes, my question is, why do Christians spend so much money just to win the loss? I mean, I, I mean, with $40, I could, I could order 40,000, I mean, 10,000 gospel tracts and reach 10,000 people. Why do Christians have to bend their back so much to spend thousands and millions of dollars in ministries and all that just to win a lost person? Some, a lot of them don't want to don't even care less about Christianity in the first place anyway. So, you have, uh, Do you have a particular example in mind where tens of thousands of dollars was spent in order to reach someone for Christ? Well, let me, let me, let me respond. Um, you know, there are, sometimes it's hard to measure, you know, the, um, amount of money you've spent and the end results that come, for instance, search the scriptures that broadcasts, uh, and various stations, on the East Coast, most of those stations cost the Search of Scriptures ministry about twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a year. Now, somebody might say, "Well, that's a that's a waste of money, fifteen thousand dollars a year to reach people for Christ." Well, it actually has a twofold ministry, much like WAGP does. One is we want to reach the lost, and by God's grace, we are. But also, um, we want to build the saved because as you build the saved. If Christians are healthy and growing, healthy sheep will reproduce and in turn win more people to Christ. But Alberto, you make a good point because sometimes we think we need to have mega box in order to reach people with the gospel, and we don't. Um, All it takes is one person being willing to share the gospel with another. I was walking down the street. I was in some ministry in the Washington, D.C. area and walking down the street with and uh, we, we came across this um, particular man's house, and he was out there blowing. He stopped his blower so we could walk by in his sidewalk. And I just commented. I said, my, you keep this place pristine. This is just beautiful. You, you really do a nice job. He said, well, I'm actually a professional gardener, and I take a lot of pride. And he was an older gentleman. Um, and I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Gene, and I introduced myself, and we chit-chatted for a while. And I said, hey, Gene, you know, I'm always kind of curious because I want to be able to encourage people spiritually. Do you go to church anywhere? And he named um, a church. It sounded Pentecostal in structure. And I said to him, well, well, Gene, let me ask you this. On a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know, 100, I'm sure. How, how certain are you if you died in the next 10 minutes that you'd go to heaven? 
said, oh, I don't know, maybe 75. I said, what, would you th- what do you think you'd have to do to be 100? He said, I don't know, maybe just keep following the Lord more closely. And so I chit-chatted with him for the next 10 minutes, shared the plan of salvation with him. Did it cost anything? Well, it cost me my time. It cost me my willingness to break off in the conversation I was having uh, to engage with this gentleman. But the scripture says, go therefore and make disciples. It's actually a participle. As you go, make disciples. It's not a missionary verse, go to Africa, go to India, go to China. It's as you go, as you're going everywhere you go, make disciples. It doesn't say do discipleship. The navigators kind of rewrote that verse. And look, I appreciate the navigators and that they want to disciple people, but that's not what the verse says. And it has robbed the evangelistic zeal of the church by thinking that our main job is to do discipleship. Doing discipleship also involves doing evangelism, and people all the time hide behind leading Bible studies and this small group or that small group when they are not themselves personally attempting to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost, and that's what God has called us to do. As we go, everywhere we go, you can't you know, speak with everyone. It might be rude and inappropriate, but when God gives opportunity and he opens a door, then you should step through that door. And sometimes we test the waters to see if there's interest. And it costs nothing. We don't need to spend tens of thousands of dollars. It costs me nothing financially to share the gospel with Gene. And he was so open, so hungry, and I gave him some scripture, and he recited the scripture addressed back to me before we left. And I wanted him to think that salvation could not be earned, that he could not do enough to make himself right with God, that he needs a a righteousness, a holiness, a presentability before the living God that he can never achieve on his own. He needs a righteousness that is gifted to him. I illustrated it with the man who was with me. And so it was just a simple way in which to share the plan of salvation with a man who is lost. So I'm not criticizing if Billy Graham spends, you know, $100,000, the Billy Graham organization, though I'm sure it's much more than that, uh, to do an evangelistic outreach. Because sometimes you have to remember the backstory. They were training Christians how to do personal evangelism for several months in advance and other things. But there are gifted evangelists that God calls sometimes to do large group evangelism. But most evangelism doesn't take place in some large group meeting. It just takes place in the everyday events of life as we care about souls and we reach out to them. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we had a listener that dictated their question. They would like to know what happened between the time Jesus was on the cross and the resurrection. Well, he went on a preaching mission. He didn't descend into hell to pay for sin. Um, And because some have thought that in some versions of the Nicene or Apostles' Creed, there's actually several versions, uh, some have admitted the phrase, he descended into hell. But he did make a descent, and it was not to pay for sin, and we know that because before he died, it's recorded 
in the word tetelestai. Uh, he shouted tetelestai. We translated it is finished. It's a financial term that was used in the first century of someone whose bill was paid. If you go to the Rockefeller Museum outside of the old city gates in Jerusalem, they have some first century pieces of parchment that go back to the time of Christ to a tax collector's office. They discovered them in 1961, and there were lists of names, and next to each name when the tax was paid, the collector wrote to Telestai, the same thing Jesus shouted from the cross. You could paraphrase it, paid in full. So the sin debt was paid on the cross as he was forsaken by the Father. As an infinite person in a finite period of time, he was able to accomplish for us what we as finite people would take an infinite amount of time to pull off in a place called hell. So I read in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He is the just. You and I were the unjust. It's a substitutionary death. He's not dying as an act of martyrdom. He's not dying as a, an example of commitment to a cause. He's dying in our place for our sins. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, worthy, of course, of the wages of sin, death, Christ dies for us. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He is the only one who can bring you to God. There is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's an incredibly narrow statement. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's not claiming to be a good way or the best way, but the only way. And if he's not the only way, he's no way. Because if he claims to be the only way to the Father, which is what he clearly, definitively said on a number of occasions in different ways, if he made such a dogmatic statement, and it were not true, then he was a liar or a deceiver or himself deceived and therefore a sinner and can save no one. So the choices are very narrow. You can't say Jesus is just a great teacher or a miracle worker. He's claiming to be God in human flesh. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, and he died physically on the cross, but made alive in the spirit in which, in which what? What does in which modify his spirit? In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, this is not a reference to his resurrection. He will affirm that a few verses later where he will speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse 21, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. He is speaking of an event that took place after they buried Christ in that cold, clammy tomb And before he was raised early Sunday morning, he went on a preaching mission in his spirit. There's uh, intermediate bodies that people are given. Moses and Elijah have not yet been resurrected from the dead. 
yet they appear in some kind of recognizable body. You say, well, he was physically assumed into heaven. Well, just remember, like Enoch, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. The bodies we have right now are not suited to walk in heaven. So whatever God did to Enoch in um, Elijah's body was not the body that you saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses appeared. They were in some intermediate body. So when we say, oh, he's up in heaven in his new resurrection body. No, he's not. He hasn't been resurrected yet. The uh, end goal of his salvation has not yet been completed. And the resurrection of Old Testament saints, the Bible is clear, doesn't happen at the rapture when church saints are brought up. It happens at the end of the tribulation, Daniel 12, 1 and 2. But Jesus somehow in his spirit, maybe he's in one of this intermediate bodies, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who is he referring to? Well, remember, there are various classes of angels. There are some angels, according to Ephesians 6, Daniel 10, that have the ability to wage war against us. There's an invisible war that's taking place in the heavenlies. And so Paul says your enemy is not simply flesh and blood people, but powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work in the heavenly realms. There's a a class of angels that are in a place known as the abyss. Remember on that occasion when Jesus dealt with the two Gerardine demoniacs and one whose name was Legion, and he ends up casting the demons into the pigs. And quite appropriate because Jews should not have been raising hogs, and he had them all run down into the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and we've been to that very location where it took place. There's only one place in the whole Sea of Galilee where it could have happened. Uh, We don't always go there because it's on the other side of the sea, and you give up other sites in order to make the drive over there. Lay that aside. There's still another class of angels. And by the way, those angels, those uh, fallen angels who, who said, please don't send us in the abyss, and Jesus honored their request. You'd think, why would he honor the request of a demon? because he wanted to get rid of the pigs. In either case, um, they will someday be released from the abyss. The abyss is open during the time of the Great Tribulation period. There's still another class of angels that Second Peter and Jude uh, speak of and that Peter alludes to here in First Peter 3. Jude, for instance, when he's dealing with apostasies, he speaks of angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. That's Jude verse 6. If you go to 2 Peter 2, and 2 Peter 2, chapter 2, is kind of a parallel chapter to Jude's dealing with apostasy. And in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Uh, Again, he's very, very clear that there's some angels who are in pits of darkness, Jude says, in eternal bonds. And so remember in the book of Colossians, um, when Paul speaks of the great victory that Christ accomplished for us in the cross, um, let me just turn over there for, for just a moment. It says, um, 
having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, is taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So he's speaking of our great forgiveness, how he has forgiven us of all of our transgressions, taking our CD, nailed it to the cross, paid for it with his blood. When he had disarmed, here it is, the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. So Jesus made a public display of the fallen angels. So there was a group of angels, however, who did not hear of this public display, and certainly that would include those that are described in 2 Peter 2, 4, and in the book of Jude, verse 6. And I think it's interesting because these are the angels who indeed cohabitated the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God cohabitated with the daughters of men, and their offspring was freak, which may explain maybe some of the severe reasons that God brought a worldwide flood on the planet. And so it's almost like as Peter writes this, and he thinks about these spirits that Christ went and preached to, um, and that reminds him of, of Noah, who once were disobedient. Who are these spirits? Who are these spirits who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah? The B'nai Elohim. In fact, the, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, who cohabitated with the daughters of men. It doesn't say the sons of men cohabitated with the daughters of men, but the B'nai Elohim, and that's used in Scripture of fallen angels like in the book of Job. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, doesn't say B'nai Elohim. It says the angels of God. Um, So, uh, again, clearly these were angels who did not know, and Jesus wanted the angels in heaven below and in the caverns beneath in a place called Tartarus, a specialized compartment of hell, who do not have any freedom to watch, who are in eternal bonds, that he is victorious over every realm of spirituality. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have Paula on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Dr. Brogy. I have a question about um, what is your opinion about what will be the role of the Holy Spirit in the new heavens and new earth? I'll hang up and listen. Yeah, great question. So remember, we worship one God who is uh, described as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So sometimes people say, well, when I pray to the Father, am I praying to Jesus? Yes. You cannot separate the members of the Godhead, they are inseparable, though certainly God underscores that each member of the Trinity uh, has sometimes a unique expression in terms of their ministry to us or our relationship to each one of them. Uh, Who created the world? Well, I suppose if you read Genesis only, you would think, well, Elohim, Um, God created the heavens and the earth, Uh, the Father. Uh, If you read Colossians, you might think, well, the Son created the world. If you read the Psalms or the book of Job, you might think, well, the Spirit of God created the world. Uh, And even an allusion to his creative powers are found in Genesis. And so you cannot separate 
the ministries of each member of the Trinity. If I ask you who gives spiritual gifts, most Christians would immediately say, well, God, the Spirit does. Well, certainly does, and there's an accent in terms of his involvement in giving us spiritual gifts. But in the book of Romans, chapter 12, it tells us that God the Father is the giver of spiritual gifts. And in the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, it says that uh, God the uh, Son gives spiritual gifts. So to take all the air out of the balloon and to get directly to your question, when we are in heaven, we will be engaged with each member of the Godhead because the members are co-equal and co-eternal, and they are inseparable. In terms of the highlight of their ministry, well, there's a lot of silence. Um, Will we still be indwelt with the Spirit? Jesus said he'll be in you forever, forever and ever and ever. So I am assuming, safely to say, that his ministry through us will at that point be perfect. We won't be able to quench him. We won't be able to uh, grieve him because we'll no longer have a sin nature. We'll be like Christ, but he'll be very active and involved in our lives. You know, we'll do work in eternity. People think, well, you sit around in clouds and do nothing. No, God is a working God. God had Adam and Eve working even before the fall. Work is not part of the curse. What's part of the curse is the way work unfolds by the sweat of our brow. And so I'm assuming that it will be safe to say that the Spirit of God will be working through us. Will the Son? Yes. Will the Father? Yes. Again, the members will be inseparable. But there's a lot of silence in terms of each aspect of the Trinitarian God and how uh, we will relate to them. But we can take the general principles found in the rest of Scripture and extrapolate them into the future and at least have some hand biblical handholds that we can grab grab hold of. Good question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we had a listener that called in that would like to know, how did Lucifer fall from grace? Well, there are two critical passages that deal with the fall of Satan. Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven. And so... Of course, only a pre-eternal, a pre-existent person could make such a claim, but his fall is recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. They're easy to remember, 14 times 2 is 28. So Isaiah 14, you find the five I wills of the evil one. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He is created as a person. He's not a human person. He's an angelic person. And so I have a course on angelology, angels for us and angels against us. And in that course, you might want to uh, listen to the section that deals with the fall of Satan. But again, he exerts himself. He wants to be like God. And by the way, that pattern continues. He wanted to steal worship from God, and he will, I suppose, in the future, see that achieved at least on some level through his coming Antichrist, and that men will worship the Antichrist, and the Bible teaches they'll worship the dragon as well, Revelation chapter 13. But it will be short-lived because, of course, he'll be in the, uh, uh, he'll be um, locked up for a thousand years during the millennial reign, and then removed at the end of the thousand years, and then he will join his compatriots, the false prophet, and the Antichrist, who at the second coming are thrown into the lake of fire, 
and there he will be forever and ever and ever. But two key passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, I have a whole message on that. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can type in either of those passages, you'll find a sermon, or you can go to the Institute of Biblical Studies at the same website. And by the way, there's a phone app, so you don't have to be at a laptop or a computer station. You can download it at the App Store. If you type in Search the Scriptures, one word, it looks like somewhat of a blue triangle, and you can download it and type it in and do a search and listen to that message. Good question. Let's go to the next. Very good. Kathy from Fort Lawn, South Carolina writes, uh, my Sunday school class was talking about how the world is looking like it's moving closer and closer to the tribulation. They were discussing how it's going to get worse. For example, how they were talking about uh, reprobate minds and the way that the, the economy is going. One particular person said, well, whatever happens, I know that God will see us through. I agree, I said to her, but we must also prepare. We must prepare our homes with extra food and supplies for you and your neighbor. We must prepare spiritually so we won't be deceived. I know I am and will be taken care of from the Lord, but I also feel that we should prepare. Should I just let things just happen and not prepare for anything? Is it biblical to buy a little extra food? I am not a rich person, but I do buy a bag of rice and some beans for me and for those who will need it. Is it biblical to watch the world and discern to prepare for time that might be tough? Does God let you know that it is wise to prepare? I don't know what or when or if there is going to be hardship, but the world is saying there is. To me, that is a way of saying we should prepare ourselves and help our neighbors. I am concerned about those people. Thank you, and please provide some scripture so I can study that. Well, first of all, let me just say that we will not be here for the Great Tribulation. And even if someone were here for the Great Tribulation, at that point, it would be virtually impossible to prepare for anything. In fact, the people who are believers who are converted during that time, uh, through the Jewish witness of 144,000 missionaries, through uh, the two witnesses that are spoken of in the Revelation, I'm assuming are probably Moses and Elijah, though we're not definitively told, but there'll be two witnesses and an angel who will preach the eternal gospel, Revelation 14 as well. And between those three sources, the gospel will go out. This gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world, and then the end will come. That's the promise of Scripture. The Great Commission will be fulfilled during the time of the Great Tribulation period, but the church won't be here. In Revelation 4.1, John sees a door that is opened in heaven, and he... Uh, then sees a picture of 24 elders who are representative of the body of Christ, the church, and they take their crowns because at the judgment seat of Christ, we are rewarded with crowns, and they worship Jesus Christ with them. And interestingly, the church is not mentioned again until the church comes back with Christ. So we're not here during the great tribulation period. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. And the scripture is, we are reminded, for instance, in the book of Revelation, where Jesus addresses seven churches. And so we have, you know, seven additional letters, so to speak, seven additional um, epistles that are written to seven different churches. And one of the churches that he writes is the church at, at Ephesus. And he gives them uh, s- some promises. He gives them some encouragement he wants them to persevere, that they might not quit. 
and uh, that they would pursue on. So he starts with Ephesus. He goes with Smyrna, Pergamum. He goes to Thyatira. And he makes a promise that uh, there's a there's a time that is coming upon the whole world, on the entire planet. And he promises that you won't be here for that time uh, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you. Now he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. And so suddenly, quickly, uh, it's going to happen. Jesus is going to catch up the church, and there'll be a time of testing that will come upon the whole world. Even World War I and World War II only encompassed a certain percentage of, uh, of countries. There were parts of the world that you would not have known there was a world war going on. But there's coming an hour that will encompass the entire planet. When Jesus described it, uh, he basically quotes the uh, prophet Daniel. Daniel speaks of a time of unprecedented tribulation and hardship in Daniel 12. Uh, Just read the opening two verses. And Jesus uh, virtually quotes Daniel 12 when he speaks of this coming time. And I'm just turning here now to Matthew 20. Four, and he said, for this, for then there will be a time of great tribulation. By the way, I'll be speaking on this a little bit this Sunday. We'll be cracking the door. A time of great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world or until now or ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So God will cut short those days for the sake of tribulation saints. He'll have someone uh, to enter into the promised kingdom because they'll be protected sovereignly. Most of the saints during the tribulation who are converted during that time will die, and they'll die by beheading. Now, with that said, I'm not saying that you shouldn't prepare for difficult times now. Uh, go to the Annals, sluggard, Proverbs 6, observe her ways, be wise, which having no a chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. So he's saying, look, learn a lesson from these Israeli ants. And there are many breeds and types of ants. They did a study once on ants. And there's certainly some in the Middle East who follow this direct pattern. In a time of plenty, they prepare. So in time of need, they'll have something. And so, you know, a hurricane comes. Everybody wants bread, milk, and toilet paper. Of course, when the power comes out, none of those things last except maybe the bread. Um, With that said, we should be wise. We should be good stewards for difficult times that come. But ultimately, our faith and trust needs to be in the living God because you can't save up enough food for difficult times that come. But God will provide for his own. And the worst that can happen is you die and you go straight to heaven if you know Jesus is Lord. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today on The Bible Line. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 